Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. Okay. All right. Um, of the flight of the Noldor and of the Sindar. So... Uh, my comment is going to be that I read these out loud to Tristan, which is a pretty great way to read them, honestly, because you just get this intensity of emotion, um, especially from Of the Flight of the Noldor. It just, it felt very, very intense in a way that, like, you kind of get from the language, but you get so much more when the language is spoken out loud. So that was really neat. Um, Eloise. Yes, it's a recurrent exper experience I have with Tolkien of like reading it out loud, either to my cat or my roommates uh, or myself. Don't judge me. Uh, it's great. Um, okay, so basically, Fiano went from like a drama queen to a little bitch. Um, like, I'm sorry, like, excuse you. I was so mad at him, and I understand why everyone wants his neck and like a stab in his back or in his face i don't mind and then of the cinder okay also not on that i poor Teleris. like they just had the most traumatic experience with like a gigantic like is that a spider of darkness coming in and then the next thing they know is that their friend is are murdering them for both and of the cinder it feels a lot like you like watching something that your cat is going to destroy it's like it's beautiful it's it's doing its thing like it's plant thing it's beautiful it's happy and then you see the cat approaching and you can't help you can't you can't stop the cat you're not fast enough the cat suddenly bites in the plants like oh you know it's going to happen and you can't stop it and it's it's so sad because Yes, the orcs and serpent, but that we expect that. But then you're like, the Noldors are coming. And I'm like, ah. also the dwarves are uh, in the chapters, and I'm really happy about that. The Noldor are the cat that's going to wreck everything. Speaking of cats, Rogue is just lurking behind my computer, staring at my yogurt. Um, I was going to make another point, too, and I don't remember what it was. So that's okay. Rob. Um, I, I guess I forgot how, how badass Million is. Like the fact that she keeps a whole, um, ecosystem running without sunlight. That's pretty badass, you know, <laughs> beyond even just her normal wisdom and girdle of million stuff. But yeah, she doesn't even need the sun. That's wild. She is the sun. Well, I mean, there, there is no sun at this point, but the light, the only sun is the light of Valinor. And Thingol is content to not see the light of Valinor because he sees it in Melian's face. Ergo, Melian is the light that makes everything photosynthesize. I guess, uh, Sarah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of disappointing, actually, that we have such a small group for, like, the first kinslaying. Like, oh no. Um, a bunch of people are missing today, um, but, and I'm, 
I'm assuming we're going to talk about language in the flight of the Noldor um, and like the weight of the oath and stuff like that. Um, but what I was thinking about this time was actually just how like sheerly persuasive Fanor is. Um, and I was actually thinking of uh, that fic. I, I sent this fic to you. We both read it. So, but it was the the sense of it. It relied on the. Yeah, you can't read it until you've done the Silmarillion, but the premise of it was like some of the sons of Feanor come back to Valinor. Um, and there's a lot of like political upheaval that rests on the idea that like Feanor and his sons were too persuasive. Um, and that like they upset the like tenuous balance of peace by virtue of the fact that they say things and people do them. Um, and this is a trait that's that they 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 propose as being carried forward like chiefly in Maglor, who is the singer, um, and therefore also has a lot of responsibility with words. But I thought that was a really interesting take on like the sons of Feanor, um, and Feanor himself as being just like too persuasive for like power because. Um, they're, when they speak, it inhibits people's ability to actually think about what they're doing. And you note that because like Feanor's like, if I let them go away, they'll think about it. But if I keep them here and keep talking, I'm good. That fic is about Maglor, but like canonically, it's Kurfen who carries this forward, which we'll, we'll see later. So it definitely does go from Feanor to some kids of his. And Tristan. Hello. Also, hello. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Ungoliant again because, like, we don't get enough of her, honestly. She shows up for these two chapters and then, bye. I mean, I think she might get mentioned, like, two more times. Anyway. Um... So I want to talk about Ungoliant and the self-destructive nature of evil because, oh boy, Ungoliant just makes all of Tolkien's points just more concisely than anyone else. It's kind of great. Um, and you end up with a Ungoliant. So there's like three things about Ungoliant that I kind of want to talk about, but and I don't know if we need to want to do that now or later. But like, I want to talk about Ungoliant and light and light and soul. And I want to talk about Ungoliant and Morgoth and their hate-hate relationship. Um, and oh yeah, Ungoliant's inevitable demise. So hopefully we will get to those. And Josh. Hi. Sorry, just rushed in here. I was running late because I had to go get gas as well. Um, welcome to Feanor is a Terrible Person. Um, I think one of the biggest things I noticed here is that Feanor is basically doing exactly the same thing to the Teleri as Morgoth did to him. And he doesn't realize it because he's a moron and arrogant and all of those things. Um... Yes, Tristan, I think this is the most clear that the 
self-destructive evil thing gets put. I think that's cool. Um, and I would like, I would like it to be remembered in future chapters. Um, as we see the interactions between the Noldor and the people of Thingol. That Thingol used to be the king of like all of Beleriand. And then all these refugees came back and invaded and reduced his kingdom to just about nothing. And that may come into play in his views of the rest of the Noldor later. Refugees is a strong word for people who didn't have to leave for any reason. True, but it's 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 a similar perception for What was your last it's a similar perception to what? Sorry, you cut off. Oh, it's it's a similar perception from from his end. Well, I mean, I think he might view them more as an annoying colonizing force, but yeah, like I was going to say, like, refugees don't generally come, like, armed and, like, with all of their jewels and, like, the explicit intent to conquer. Oh, okay, that, that's fair, that's fair. Well, there is another group that's, you know, making the trek across the grinding ice um, that could be considered more of a, more of a refugee group. Yeah, like, I, I would, yeah, it makes a bit more sense for the people of Fingolfin. Even if, like, the reason they left in the first place doesn't line up. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to the Noldor in Valerian that's coming up next week. Um, okay, uh, we can talk about Ungoliant first. That works. Um, as a, what is, what, Eloise, what's your face? <laughs> It's my face when we speak, we talk about spiders. It's fine. Don't mind me. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Does anyone want to give a just as a preface to the Ungoliant conversation, like a brief recap of uh, new information about Ungoliant in these chapters, or just like what what the bits we're talking about are? I vote Tristan. Sorry, the option to unmute not showing up. There we go. I swear it's going to work this time. Okay. Um, yeah, Ungolian shows up, sucks the tree's blood. That was last chapter, but like it, it's relevant. Um, leaves with Morgoth in a, a in a cloud of adorable darkness to the north. No, not adorable, just darkness. Um, and then is like, hey, hey, I'm still hungry. Hey, what about all those shiny, shiny jewels you've got there? Can I have, have some of those? And Morgoth is like, well, fine. I did, I guess, agree to uh, feed you. And, you know, then she eats them all. And for some reason, this makes Morgoth less powerful. I understand that it makes her more powerful, but it could also just be a power dynamics thing that he keeps, you know, giving up his wealth to her. Um, and then she's like, hey, I see that you're, you know, holding something back from me. I want, I want to eat it all. 
And he's like, no, some wells are mine. You can't have all the world, even though he kind of promised to give her whatever she wanted. And if she wants the world, that's, that's the thing. He's kind of agreed to give it to her. Um, and so she was like, no, I want it all. And bound him in webs of darkness and uh, started biting him. I don't remember exactly what happens next. But then he's like, hey, this is rude. Belrogs, come, light her on fire please. And then the Balrogs come and they torment her with whips of flame and it's all fun. I mean, she runs to the south and buries herself in darkness and in the end consumes herself or something. A Brief History of Angoliant. Um, okay, that was a summary. <laughs> uh, I, I interpreted the power issue as um, not a result of giving her the jewels, but a result of the assault on Valinor itself. Like Morgoth used his, had to use his power in assaulting Valinor um, and didn't gain it back. Whereas Ungoliant only got more powerful because she turned all of the light into darkness and she got really big. Um, I thought it was just like, since he's been in um, Arda, the power he's lost making things and enslaving things and trying to corrupt things. Um, like that whole, that whole period of time is just what I assume while he's been doing his, his dark work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. Tristan's going to try and find it. Um, yes, okay, so, yeah, other things that I would add to that. Um, Ungoliant goes to um, Arid Gorgoroth, so she, she goes not that far south of Angband first, mates with a bunch of giant spiders that are there, eats them, has babies, and then leaves the babies, which are more terrifying than the giant spiders that were already there. And now I'm trying to find that passage um, about her eating herself. Uh, of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells, yet some have said that she ended long ago when, in her uttermost famine, she devoured herself at last. Great, excellent. Page 72, in my version. <laughs> so, yes, now that we have that context, what are, what do we think of Ungoliant now? Hmm. I mean, I've got a lot of different thoughts about what Ungoliant represents um and i don't know i guess i don't i don't know that she necessarily consumed herself so i uh i like to think that she's around somewhere you know doing doing her thing um but i also see her as like tristan's gonna get into her being a representation of evil and the self-destructive nature of evil I don't necessarily see Ungoliant as evil so much as outside the regular dichotomy of good and evil. Um, 
as her her own entity, maybe like a representation of destruction, something like that. Because um, she usually doesn't. You could kind of say that she's corrupting things by eating them and spinning them into darkness. But you could also say that she's just destroying things and then creating darkness of her own power. Because um, the way she does that is very different from what we see with someone like Morgoth and how Morgoth corrupts. Yeah, she she strikes me as a void spider, right? And the idea of void is more primordial in a certain sense than evil, the way Melkor and his like fallen satanic glory seems to represent it. Like I think following that thought, like I think if she was just purely evil and doing that because it was bad and she enjoyed it kind of thing, uh, even if, like, no, uh, people would not suppose that she devoured himself, herself in the end because they would be like, no, she's just a bitch. She's doing bitchish things just somewhere else and we're lucky to avoid that. But if she's actually like if she's as you said like a void spider like just driven by devour 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 well first the one the people in Belarion and everywhere else dodge a freaking bullet but uh, <laughs> and also because like she just went south and ignore them all for some reason i have questions but okay they don't have light, so I guess they're not interesting. Um, and like, so back on like the void thing, like I think the fact that even if no one knows exactly what happened to her, but they suppose that she eventually devour him herself is like, maybe they're trying to reassure themselves that she will never ever come back, but maybe also it's like they saw her acting and it's not like, I want to destroy it because it's gonna hurt you. It's like, I just, devour and that's what i do and so seeing that it would be like at one point what does she do when there is nothing else to devour but herself that she would devour herself i think i don't know if i made sense but yeah like i would say like even the lack of narrative about her or like the point of view on her tells us a lot about what she could be or what more and also not not only what people see her as but also what she could be um i love the idea that a void spider is also represented by there being a void of information about her i mean maybe she developed that too <laughs> all right Tristan, you had some thoughts. Yeah. So hmm. my take on Ungolian is, well, Ungolian well, hmm. devours light. That's pretty much what we know about her eating habits. Um, devours light and maybe souls, unclear depending on your interpretation of the relationship between light and souls, which indicates that A, whenever she's kind of consuming something, she's eating whatever 
light slash soul is inside it. And if she is consuming herself, that means she is in some way a being of soul. Not entirely, but is not without her own internal light in some way. Um, which places her more firmly as a Valar slash Maiar type being than as an unknowable entity from beyond the bounds of the world, effectively, um, to my mind. The other thing you get, <sighs> yeah. That, that, that's mostly what I have to say on Angolian herself. Like, hmm. I have other things to say about her and the Samuels and Morgoth's bad choices, but. I, I can agree with what you're saying there. Like, if you buy into the fact that she consumes herself and all she consumes is light, that I, I can agree that that means she is of light in some way, which means the theory of her origin, or she's a like a Maiar who came down. Um, and was corrupted, makes sense. Um, and then she's of Aluvatar. So then that feeds back into the whole uh, narrative of um, nothing is nothing is evil in the beginning or whatever. Um, so she's been corrupted in some sense at some point during her, during her travels in a similar mode as, as Morgoth. I think where I would specifically differ is that I don't necessarily think that she has to have consumed herself. Um, and I think she could be something else, you know, in the same way that a character like Tom Bombadil seems like they're something else that doesn't cleanly fit into um, the hierarchy of Valar and Meyer. Fair. Eloise just picking up kittens, tossing them around. Listen, it's that or they destroy the plants. And like, as yeah. I told you, if I can stop the, the, the Feanor to destroy the rest of the world, I'm doing it. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I find the idea, I find the idea um, that in order to devour herself, Ungoliant must have some light inside her to be both um, compelling and absolutely terrifying. Why do you find it terrifying? Because I would say my answer to that is that if she has no light in herself and she devours being of light, it's like it's like a lion eating an antelope. It's like that's just what she does. She eats the light. And yes, it's very unfortunate for everyone who is part of this category, but yeah. Um, but if she herself has light, it's more akin to cannibalism, in a way. It's like she could recognize the other beings as similar to herself, and she doesn't. Or she does and doesn't care and eat them anyway. Which is terrifying. Yeah, I like that. What Eloise is saying about, like... Um that sense that that Angolian is consuming um consuming something that yeah she's also a part of right in, in a cannibalistic sense 
Um, I think like jives really well with the idea of consumption that Tolkien is putting forward here, right? Um, like one of Tolkien's concerns about um, about a lot of things about industry and the world that he was living in is the way that, that humans consume the world around them um, without the recognition of like their place in it and, and the part of the world that they live in, right? And Ungoliant represents that in really concrete ways in that she like, she can't live without the things that she consumes, but she destroys them. Um, and like is there and and is such a like a raw consumptive force um that like her way of life isn't sustainable um which i think is like a strong commentary on things that tolkien on what tolkien considers evil to be um and it's something that has a lot of its root in greed and like endless consumption yeah, I've argued before that um, like Tolkien conceptualizes evil beings as things that are so alienated from the rest of the world that they can only interact with it um, through consumption or destruction. Um, or I guess more, maybe more accurately, things that have alienated themselves from the world to the point that etc. So on the consumption side of things, you have like Gollum and Ungoliant. And on the destruction side of things, you have Morgoth and Sauron, where, you know, you cannot enjoy something that is free and happy because you are just so jealous and full of hatred. Yes, which does lead to another question, which is how does Ungoliant interact with various different ideas that Tolkien has of evil? <laughs> there are various ways to answer this, but I would like at least one person to talk about the evil is self-destructive thing. Yeah, I'm gonna get there. Sorry, I'm just looking something up, I'll be a moment. Well, I'm gonna go on the other one, which is like evil corrupts. Um, I have a question about this one, like evil corrupts and cannot create. It's like, I'm not sure if I misunderstand what Angolians does or do or is, but like she does create this anti-light in a way, but does she create it because she corrupts light? Or because that's a thing that exists and she just further its existence? Um, so I'm hesitant to specifically commit to using the word corrupt, but she definitely does make her unlight out of light. Okay. She takes light and she turns it into unlight. Which is, you know, why the more light she gets, the, the more powerful she is. So the idea is presented in this chapter that Ungoliant would like to consume all of the world, um, which, you know, she denies, but people deny a lot of things. Um, spider people, especially. And 
I, I think it's a really interesting idea that without light, she cannot exist. So if she were to get her greatest desire, you know, to consume all of the light, she would then ultimately fail and die because there would be nothing left for her. And so that feeds into the idea of evil is self-destructive in one way with Ungoliant, um, in the sense that by the, by the very fact that she can only consume um, and cannot create something to help herself exist, live, whatever, she is um, bound to an existence that uh, that is purely consumptive and therefore the more she succeeds the closer she brings her own failure inevitable demise um the other part of evil self-destruction is what we see in um ungoliant and morgoth's relationship here insofar as ungoliant is like hey hey i just want the somewhere else and morgoth fundamentally refuses to give them to her and that is the origin of their disagreement is greed greed is a problem it makes people fight and the evil people fight each other and that sucks because if they'd stuck together oh my goodness the havoc they could have wreaked that would have been bad um but because of the fundamental interaction of the evil beings in this chapter, it is kind of a given that they will come into conflict and will destroy each other. Hot takes. It's interesting. Um, like you bring up the idea of greed being the, the source of conflict, and we're going to see that a couple more times um, in these chapters. And but I thought it was really interesting that um, the way the Valar, when they're in need, and Feanor is being greedy, the way they handle that, I think, is the only time it doesn't turn to direct conflict um, right away. I wonder if that's you know a way of demonstrating their inherent goodness, but that they haven't been tainted by by any of Morgoth's corruption. That's good. I was thinking something completely unrelated, which is like, there's a lot about um, unity versus disunity in this chapter, right? Um, Tristan was talking a lot about, you know, how evil just fundamentally cannot stay unified. Like, if you are an evil thing, you are backstabbing your other evil things and in competition with them. Um, which I think ties over into stuff like the doom of Mandos and how when good people fall to evil, it's because they're again, treachery and the fear of treachery, or they're just, they're falling apart and they're backstabbing each other. Um, whereas good to a certain extent is repre like represents unity or unity represents good. All 
All right, you can comment on that or you can move on because I have an entirely separate question. Yes. I do have one comment on that, which is just, you know, keep this hell unity versus disunity, evil and good thing in mind for who I don't know the rest of the Silmarillion. Specifically, all of the elves. Oh my goodness. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I have, you, oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Do you want to speak then to that Doom of Mandos and that issue now, or do you want to come back to it? I want to come back to it. Okay. Oh, wait then. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so before the Doom of Mandos, uh, my first question is just like, the book itself basically asks you a question uh, when it says, it might seem like it doesn't matter if Feanor had said yes or no to Yavanna wanting to use the Silmarils to revive the trees, because Morgoth stole them anyway, but it, it probably does matter. Do we agree? Does it matter? I mean, it does not matter for the uh, trees' um, fate, or like for like the what they intended to do with the Silmaril. Like, yeah, they don't have the Silmaril anyway, whether or not Kano gives them. But it does matter for their relationship with Fiano and how Fiano is like how people want to punch Fiano in the face or not, um, and how much Fiano like becomes more and more of an arrogant asshole. Um, so, because like, by seeing, say like, he does make kind of a good good argument. He says like, well, Yavanna, you just said like, it's a tragedy because it's something you can create only once and like, it's, it's gone and it's very sad. And like, you would understand like, and I, to an extent I can be like, yes, he, he makes a point that they're basically asking him to go through the exact same pain that Yavanna is going through right now of like the only the thing I can create only once in my lifetime have to be this have been destroyed or will be destroyed that's not like it's it's a big thing they're asking him and he's make a fair point to point that out like you literally just went through that and you want to inflict it on me ouch but at the same time by pointing that out it would and and saying no it's like i cannot understand him and at the same time he follows up with like such an asshole move constantly and i'm like you know what i give up on you but if he had made this point and then said yes i'll do it like it's just making the sacrifice all the more important because it's like i see your pain and to lessen your pain i'm gonna go through this pain which is a big deal like which would have been great like it's like yeah like i think like after that the Vala would have been like pretty like would have been pretty incent incentive to be like well, I know we said you should be over there constantly and you don't really belong here or like what exile shit and stuff. But you know, you kind of bought your way back. Like, we good. And you showed us that you actually don't deserve to be in exile anymore, you know? Like, 
you need a big deal. And so Q maybe Fennel does not leave. Q maybe um, Tellery doesn't get massacred again by another group. Q Q's arrest of the book doesn't happen, or most of it at least, uh, <laughs> or something like that, you know, like, uh, but here he's saying like, I don't want to go through this pain, which fair enough, it hurts, not cool. And he immediately twists, twisted into like, that's a proof you are so evil and bad and like you hate me and like I'm a poor victim and whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm like, it's not all about you, Fiano. Like the trees are literally the only freaking sun for the whole fucking world. It's not about like wanting to hurt you by destroying your thing. It's about trying to give the sun and moon back to literally everyone, you little dipshit. Um, like, he, he does like the, the bad, like the bad and monk of thing or like whatever, but like doing like me, me, me. It's like, no, they don't ask that. That's the asset of you because you only you're the only one with the silver wheel, but they don't ask that of you to hurt you. Like they 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 know they will hurt you, but they don't do that for hurting you. They do that because there is a greater benefit behind hurting you. And also it's kind of like an hand extended, is like, would you agree to be cool with us again? kind of thing and he's like no it's your fault if my dad father died it's like he pisses me off and i'm gonna go further with that but yeah like i think it would have mattered to answer the question yes i think it would have mattered because the relationship would have been changed and uh like Fano could have like gotten over himself yeah it looks like josh made a comment that's building off of that josh uh you're muted i think so to make Joshua's point for him, um, I would say to that note that Feanor, Feanor's a stubborn bastard. Um, and so when he says no to the Valar, it means that he's going to carry that no to the ends of the earth and stick with it through all of the bad decisions that he's about to make. Um, and he does that. Why does he ever do that? Um, but if if he hadn't responded, or if he'd said yes, then that would have put him in a very different light, or he could have presented himself in a very different light, um, as opposed to setting himself up as the person who says no. And then in opposition to the Valor, which is a position that he's going to take for, well, the rest of his life. Yeah, a lot of it is about like, is about the way that Feanor is perceiving himself and the people around him, right? Like, so the Valar send Feanor into exile 
because he can't pull it together enough to consider people outside of himself. <laughs> right? Because he's causing all this strife and it's it's out of this inherently like selfish motive um, that causes conflict in his family. Um, and then at this festival, they have just reconciled and they've done it honestly, mostly by appeasing Feanor. Like, like Feanor comes back, but mostly it's Fingolfin doing the apologizing. Um, mostly it's playing into Feanor's own sense of importance and place, right? Um, and this is from like the stuff, some of the stuff from Darkening of Valinor from last week. Uh, I will follow you, Fingolfin says. So they're already giving Feanor all of this, this sense of him, his own importance back, I guess. Um, but Feanor hasn't kind of grasped the idea of like doing something for the benefit of people outside himself. Because if you had, if he had said yes, if he says, yeah, you can use the Silmarils, um, I understand what it means to everyone to use them, and then, like, the Silmarils aren't there, then Feanor's immediate reaction, which is, well, let's get them back, is not a selfish one either, right? Um, the reaction, let's go retrieve them, is also about the community that he would be retrieving them for. That doesn't necessarily mean that you would avoid all of the pain that goes with it, like you're still going to fight Morgoth. Um, so it's still gonna go probably badly for you. Um, but you have, yeah, again, this unity, right? A unity of purpose between Feanor and the Noldor and the Valar um, that would, yeah, resolve a lot of the problems, and the Teleri probably don't die, because, you know, they have no reason to, I guess, want to hold them back, and because the Valar and the Noldor are working together, basically. Um, so it's not like it cuts the story off to set up, to give Feanor the chance to, like, consider people outside of himself, but instead Feanor's like, no, I've never considered the needs of the community ever in my life, and I'm not going to start now. Um, and I'm going to continue to go about my business and backstab my brother while I'm at it. Even though he just capitulated to me in a fight that I started. Yeah, and it's also like... We, we earlier mentioned like he does exactly the same thing as Morgoth does and he got mad at Morgoth for doing um, in a very hypocrite way. Uh, also the parallel I see is that Morgoth wants power for power. So he's the strongest and it's and everyone recognizes he's the strongest and he can do whatever the fuck he wants. But like, sorry, kitten fight with cable. Um, but, um, what we see in good leaders is that they do things for the community. They're like, well, if I become king or leader or whatever, it's because I think like, I think my community will be better off with the decision I make. And 
that's why, for example, like Finway, like and Ingwe and Owe, I think, like they decided to cross the freaking sea and to follow this dude with his gigantic horse and like which is very who is very noisy and stuff. Um, but <laughs> you know, uh, and Fano, like he's he's given this responsibility. So like, and I think he's seen good leaders around him. And he's given this responsibility of like, hey, you did, you're the boss. Now I'm following you by Fingolfin. And who's the, on the one who would have claim on this title. And so like implicitly it's like, hey, you're the boss. Now take care of us. And the first thing he does is like, oh, I could take care of you at a personal sacrifice cost. Fair. Or... I could say fuck you all. Hmm. Very tough choice. I think, I think as your leader, I should say fuck you all and go and continue to fuck you all and fuck you over when you say, stand up and say like, that is not how a leader should act. You're not deserving of that title. Stop and act like a leader and keep and apparently they give, keep giving him a chance to step up as a leader and act as a leader, saying aka as a community caregiver, uh, rather than a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> and and every time he's given this opportunity, he's like, mm -mm, I like to fuck you all, and I'm gonna keep doing that. And it's like very evil and Morgothy stuff to do, ironically, for the person who claims to hate him the most. But yeah. Uh, Josh, did you have something you wanted to say? Um, I actually have to run off right away, but it seems to me like we are rapidly approaching the Oath of Feanor here. And I, I, have, I have what Feanor swears. It's from an earlier version of the Silmarillion, but everything that's in there that's mentioned is in here, so I think it's pretty close. And I'm, I'm just gonna just gonna leave you with this before I go. Be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean, brood of Morgoth or bright Vala, Elda or Maya or aftercomer, man yet unborn upon Middle Earth, neither law nor love nor league of swords. Dread nor danger, not doom itself, shall defend him from Feanor and Feanor's kin, whoso hideth or hoardeth, or in hand taketh, finding keepeth, or afar casteth a Silmaril. This swear we all. Death we will deal him ere day's ending, woe unto world's end. Our word hear thou, Eru Allfather, to the everlasting darkness doom us if our deed faileth, on the holy mountain here in witness, and our vow remember Manwe and Varda. So that's why everything happens. Basically a nice way to say, oh yeah, we could help nice people, but we won't. Thank you. 
like okay it's so much more than that specifically because it's not just fuck you it's also I swear to always respond by saying fuck you and if I ever don't then like doom myself to the void I swear by god Shadow is a little bitch and the worst the worst part is that he ropes five, like seven kids into it. Seven kids, like sure, some of them had a little bitch gene in them, but some of them could have just chilled in Valinor and never be little bitches or burned to death on a boat. Just saying. I like that we acknowledge that in no situation is Kurofin a better person than he is in Silverland. <laughs> I mean, the Silmarillion recognizes it him itself. It says, like, some of them had more of Nedanil, but most of, like, some of them has, had more Fëanor. So, like, it's a little bitch, Jean. It's just that effect. Um, okay, so... Fëanor is terrible, but people follow him. And so the Silmarillion doesn't give us the actual wording of... The oath, but it does give us a lot of the wording of what Feanor says to the Noldor, and I I don't know. I want to ask, like, are there any arguments in there that you guys find compelling? From the perspective we're given, no. But also, I could I could maybe empathize with them, given what we know about how the Valar conduct themselves and how. They don't really talk to the elves. They just almost treat them like pets. Like if you're in that situation and there's these powerful things that have complete control over your life and they don't really respect you on an individual level, if you're kind of nervous about that, there's this guy you trust and he he's telling you that, um, you know, bad things are going to happen. I don't know. I. I can understand, I guess, up until the kid's side. Like, once you see that, I think that's your out. Um, that's when you should, you should get the wake-up call. But up to then, I can kind of maybe maybe understand it from a, like a lower-down perspective. Yeah, like, <laughs> this isn't a, this isn't a, like, Fedor um, support group. This is not a Valar support group either. Um, like... <laughs> I agree with Rob, like the way, the, the lack of communication between the Valar and like the elves um, and their kind of decision, like right from the beginning to just kind of like show up and um, not let them go about their own normal lives, um, like severely hampers their ability to then like ask them to do something um or encourage them to make good decisions because they have like like it's true if you, say you're the people you go you you wake up you go about your lives and then these mystical beings show up out of nowhere and are like you are so special and important to us come live in this paradise we've prepared for you and then suddenly it is revealed to you by the like 
by the like sneaky younger brother of and like possibly evil sneaky possibly evil younger brother of these mystical beings um he's not the younger brother he's the older brother whatever that like they've brought you here but there are more people coming um and they are a secret and also very special and like but you know how the Vala responded last time they encountered something that was very special. What happens now? Are you going to get kicked out of this paradise that you're living in, right? Like, the fact that the Valar aren't just straight and honest with the elves about, like, the situation of the world, um, or, on the other hand, don't just leave them alone to discover the world and, like, figure things out by on their own, does mess things up and does set them up for failure. <clears throat> so like Fanor's perspective, which is the Valar lied to us um, and like weren't truthful and want to like benefit from our art is not entirely untrue. It's just that like Fanor is casting this shadow over it of like his own sense of superiority as well. Um, but it's a sense of superiority that, like, as we mentioned, the Valar have not done a lot to dissuade in either the Noldor as a whole or Feanor himself. So I honestly, oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Um, so I honestly think this speech is a very impressive piece of rhetoric. Um, like, there's so much just going on here on an argumentative level. Um, right from the very beginning with, um, I would not dwell longer in the same land with the kin of my father's slayer and of the thief of my treasure. Like, it's so interesting. Like, the way he's now constructing family groups and turning, like, elves versus Valar into, like, a family blood feud type of thing. That's wild. Um, probably what I personally find to be the most compelling argument he makes is here once was light that the Valar begrudged to Middle-earth, but now dark levels all. So specifically bringing up the fact that um, the Valar basically hoarded light. So, okay, the most compelling, the most compelling argument for not giving Yavanna the Silmarils falls apart because Feanor's the one making it, right? But if, if he wasn't, I don't think it would be a terrible argument. Um, obviously, giving Yavanna the Silmarils and letting her remake the two trees is better than Feanor keeping the Silmarils because he's been locking them up in a vault where only he and his dad and his sons are allowed to look at them. Obviously, that's worse. That being said, what he's saying about the Valar begrudging light to Middle-earth is, I think, a good point because... Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but the fact that Yavanna can't just remake the trees does lead to the Valar creating the sun and the moon, which actually bring light to more than just Valinor, like actually force them to share and not just sequester in their own little paradise while ignoring the rest of the world. So 
I can see from that perspective why Feanor's argument, like, why should the Valar care about us? They don't care about Middle Earth is kind of compelling. So let's, how about Middle Earth is just waiting there and the Valar have been completely neglecting it. Like, let's go there and make it beautiful. Yeah, I would argue that this is a good argument too. It's like also the fact that one of my point of the Valar, like, like I agree with you more, why do you like bother them in the land and stuff? But like, um, the big point is that Iluvatar sent them and like, oh, you have this whole thing you've created, take care of it. And they're like, oh, look, we made a great garden. But like Morgoth is ruling the entire city. I guess we'll just stay in the garden then. And it's like, no, take care of it means if Morgoth is polluting the whole city, you kick his fucking ass and you don't let him pollute the whole city. What is wrong with you? And I understand why Yavanna and like all those who go to me, they're like Ulmo, Yavanna, uh, Orome and Tulkas are like, man away. The whole city, not the garden only, the whole city, not only the park, the whole city, please. Uh, and Manu is like, but, but Morgoth is there. And, and, and actually there's like only plants there, so it's not, it's fine. And like, of, of course, yeah, but that's not happy about that. Uh, there's only animals there. Eh, there's only water there. Like he's basically like not caring because there's, there are not elves. But even when they are elves, because some of them don't go to Valinor, he still doesn't fucking care. Why, Manway? So yeah, I agree with Fernal that if they really cared about the elves, they would have like maybe brought them to Valinor, but they would also have cared for those who stayed behind, which they didn't because otherwise orcs would not have been made. I'm sorry, like when I had the like reminder of like, oh yeah, uh, the Avaris got like captured by Morgoth or something like, oh yeah, like maybe that's what happens. Like maybe, yeah, I think, maybe like, no, this is horrible what happened to them. And it's because, not because the Vala actively did it, but they just let it happen. And that's also not okay, sitting down by evil and looking at it happen, being like, I could stop it, but that means I have to leave my garden? Oh no. So like, yes, I, I understand the anger behind this argument and like the value of this argument. Again, as you said all, it's because Fano is saying it suddenly, <laughs> kind of falls flat, but, um, and, and also I don't like his solution is like, yeah, so those dudes who brought us here failed, like did, like are not perfect. And like his solution is to say, if they are not perfect and one of them is bad, they're all bad. Ergo, we have to get the fuck out of here. Instead of one of them is evil, we established that. Uh, most of them are like, most of them like, or all of them are imperfect because 
they don't care of any, about anything else in their garden. Um, I go, we should probably tell them to stop being like, to point out their flaws and be like, walk on that because that is not okay. That is not what we want. Like we, like all the way himself could come and be like, hey, by the way, my brother's still living over there. Why don't you care? My brother and his people are still over there. Like, yes, I know they didn't agree to cross, but like millions taking care of them. But like, I don't know that, but like, you know, like, uh, they all have the argument to be like, instead of being like, okay, we're just gonna fuck off and destroy your unity, but like, they don't, they do the easy way out. It's like, well, if it doesn't work, I'm just gonna leave as if it's gonna be better outside. Um, and instead of being like, oh, there's a leak in the house, let's try to fix the leak kind of idea. And yeah, and that's why I don't like Fano because his solution is to say, and to promise he will always say, fuck you all, instead of actually actively working on a problem, he's just gonna be like, if I can't hit the problem into submission, I leave the problem to others, basically. And it pisses me off. Yeah, Sarah, did you wanna read your comments? Yeah, well, you were talking, you were talking about the light, right? And Fanor's like um, rhetorical approach to like the, the idea that they've left Valerian in darkness. Um, and like, that's true. The Valar have created um, or have, have shaped the, this idea of light into a marker of hierarchy, basically. Um, you bring people over to Valinor and they've now seen the light and that makes them qualified to be, you know, more, they're more inspired leaders. They are hypothetically better people. Um, and therefore, you and you start to create this stigma about people who haven't seen the light of Valinor that we talked about um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about when they first went to Valinor. Um, and so, but that's on the Valar. The Valar could have avoided creating this stigma of like the people of the light and people who are not of the light by just extending the light. Um, like after this, they take some light and they put it in the sky and then it's accessible to everybody, but they didn't think of that before as a way of lighting the world, um, because it was not a concern of theirs that light make it to other places, like, right? Um, and so like effectively part of Feanor's argument is, is like this system relies on us never being able to be good enough, right? Um, it's it's essentially a class consciousness. Like we are benevolently given everything that makes us like worthy, right? People, the Valar just kind of decided we were the worthy ones and therefore gave us this gift of light. Um, but it's not something that we can achieve on our own or grasp for ourselves. Fanor saying, I've grasped for myself this gift of light, and we should all have it. But 
like, unfortunately, he doesn't actually think that we should all have it. He just thinks he should have it. But the, the rhetorical tactic that he's using is we all deserve the light. Um, but the Valar don't think that we do. Um, and we can never reach a point where they'll really think that we're worthy of it. Hey, hey, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know uh, who else uses the language of class solidarity um, in, in order to uh, fool people into following them when actually they just want themselves to have everything? A lot of people, but like the conservative government? I mean, I was thinking like Nazis. That's because, that's because I kind of wanted to ask, like, did anybody else read this speech of Feanor's and think about Nazis? Yes. I did, because he does the, like, he basically orders the Valar. He's like, in, in like, two paragraphs, good job. Some people take two decades to do that, but, like, good job, two paragraphs. He's like, okay, so there's, like, us, the Nordals, and the elves in general, but like probably most the Nordals because there's the one who are going to I can actually come into, and there's the Valars, and those who follow the Valar. The Valars are bad. Whatever you do to the Valar is okay because they are bad, and they're gonna. If you don't do it, they'll do it to you. Um, hit first, and like so, he divides, and then he's like. So you're either with me or against me, and if you're against me, you're not gonna like it. Particularly if you're not a Valar, because like he's convinced he can kick a Valar in the face and survive, um, and kill, maybe like destroy the Valar, but he can only do that to other elves. Um, but he also convinced like so to other elves, he's saying like. Yeah, you're with me or you're against me, and I have swords, so you should be with me because I'm going to use a sword against those who are against me. And yeah, like once you like talked about like the like the rhetorical tactic use, I was like, wait, wait, didn't pick that up at like 11 p.m. yesterday, but other kick the other it's okay to diminish like to demean the other and all the bad comes from the other and um it's the rhetoric of fascism it's just find the find the goat and kill the goat yeah also like really literal talking points like a uh, fear of replacement and um room to live and like Govern yourself, etc., etc. It's. Um, I would also like to add to that more nuance on the othering and um, the the specific construction of what heroism looks like. Um, to our growing list of things in this that feel fashy. Um, <laughs> but okay, like further further notes on othering. Um, the way. The way that you're constructing hierarchies, not only of like us versus them, but also like within your own people, um, 
the line say farewell to the week just like gets me Tristan and the conclusion let the coward keep the city I'm like so if you're not with me you're a coward and a weak yeah. and we all know you're not that it's like this I brush up your ego at the same time as like I make you fear you're gonna not be brushed up anymore it's yeah. like it's like it's not on like it's politically it's fascism but like it's, it's also a basic manipulation technique of like I'm gonna just make you feel good as long as you do what I like or yeah, want absolutely. you to do. And as soon as you don't, you're in the group. I hate the, I, I'm the most violent against and you know how violent I get because when I include you in my group, I do that by despising others, which is very subtle and like not subtle when you know the signs, but can be very subtle when you don't know the signs. Yeah. There's also just every time I get to this point and it's like, say farewell to the week, just my brain twigs that sense of like, that, I don't know, my like, my like ableism radar twigs just because of the context in which it's being said. Um, but yeah, I don't know, anyway. Uh, I would also, okay, on to Sarah's list of very, very literal fascist talking points, I will like to, I would like to add the quote, no other race shall oust us, because that's in here. Um, and then lastly, I also wanted to mention that this is a really, really specific um, way of conceptualizing what her heroism is. And it reminds me a lot of like the Iliad and the Odyssey which in turn reminds me of fascism because a lot of fascism is drawing on that, right? And like drawing on those models of like the Kalevala or like the Iliad and the Odyssey or like Viking age sort of um, definitions of heroism as war. Um, so like I'm getting this out of several different parts, but the biggest one is shall we mourn here deedless forever a shadow folk mist haunting dropping vain tears in the thankless sea um or shall we return to our home uh etc etc um and then yeah talking about the like beauty of conquest and how you'll be the master and stuff um so that the the word like deedless reminds me a lot of um the like Homeric concept of um, Kleos or like glory that will be sung in songs, which does kind of come back later when Feanor's only reaction to the doom of Mandos is to be like, yeah, but guess what? Guess what? You'll sing songs about our deeds forever. <laughs> um, so that sense of like heroism, like it doesn't matter if you die young, what matters is if you go out in a blaze of glory or if you do like feats of violence they get you sung about forever um that's what being a hero looks like and it's specifically contrasted with this like mist haunting shadow folk that uh, i don't know if there's anything to this but it reminds me of descriptions of spirits in the fields of asphodel 
so that sense of people who didn't do anything heroic to distinguish themselves, I guess. Yeah, okay, the tiny kitten is gorgeous. Yeah. Sorry, I'm distracting. No, that's fine. That was my um, ramble of a comment. Also, like, I think, like, what, like, I think the point where, like, I, I don't give Fianos, like, benefit of the doubt is, as I said, when he builds this, like, us versus them situation, and it's so black and white and so systematic and so quick, too, that, like, and he's conscious of it. That's what I hate the most. He knows. He knows. He stops talking people we think and be like, hmm, that probably not is the best idea. Like, some points make sense, but that's probably not the outcome we should get from those points, kind of thing. Um, and he knows that, which makes it double asshole. Um, and so also, like, the quickness of this black and white situation is like, the Tellery are like, well, we're not going to lend you our ship to go against the Valar because we're not fully sure that the Valar actually like actively against us as you claim and that you revolting against them is the best thing to do. Like, it's not even saying like you immediately saying like you're wrong and like, no, you're wrong. It can't be discussed. It's like, maybe we should sit down and think that twice before we actually get convinced to give you our boat or convince further to not give you our boat. And the first thing he does is that you renounce your friendship in the hour of need. And it's like, we renounce, and it always answers, we renounce no friendship, but maybe the part of a friend to rebook a friend's folly. It's like, I don't do that because I'm against you. I do that because I care about you. And like, if you disagree that it's the right thing for me, you could argue. Like, oh, like, it's a, like you know, like, always offers a discussion, offers like, uh, I'm not convinced that's the best thing for you and your people. And definitely not the best thing for me and my people. Uh, and Fiano's immediately, immediate response is like, well, then you're against me. So all of the past history we have of friendship and help and support, because you don't give in my little like tantrum, then, then you die, which is like, I'm so glad five years old can't kill us so easily because like, that would be so many dead parents of of all. Like, it's terrifying, and it's it's also why I like I don't give Vano the benefit of the doubt anymore. Because not only he 
he paints his black and white like and i could argue that maybe after that he gets caught up in this black and white world like of us against me uh, uh, us against them or like the world against me and my sons and my similarities um but at first when he's building that he knows it's not true he knows there is legitimate rebuke to his logic and he's like yes but if we rebuke my logic it's not about me anymore and i i'm a most i'm about to promise to say fuck all no matter what happens so i can't do that and i would argue that that makes him evil from then on because like it's not only being tricked like he was tricked before by Morgoth of like striving with his brother and stuff like yes part of that was also his freaking arrogance but it was also manipulation by Morgoth who wanted his who played on this arrogance and who made it into a conflict and who nourished this conflict but now it's only fair no nourishing the conflict and building up on that and keeping it up and then promising to keep it up no matter what unless and to get uh to get doomed to the void if he doesn't keep the conflict up which is such an asshole anyway Yeah. Okay. Um, I would like to jump to the actual doom of Mandos. Consequences for Feanor being an asshole. But not just for Feanor, also for everyone else. Um, Sarah, what was your... You had something way earlier about the doom that you wanted to mention. Um, mine was less about the doom, I don't think. Oh! Oh, it was when you were talking about uh, the importance of unity, is all. Um, uh, because, like, there's there's a deep irony in the choices that Feanor and Fingolfin are making here, right? And it's, in fin it's that Fingolfin is only here because he understands the importance of unity. Like, Fingolfin is just regularly giving everything up so that the Noldor are not split into three, right? Um, like, Fingolfin is regularly, he's like, it says, Fingolfin also went with them because he didn't want to leave his people. Um, and he didn't want to leave his people to Feanor's sense of unity, so Fingolfin is there with them. And after the kinslaying, when some of them turn around, Fingolfin keeps going because he committed, right? because he committed to it and therefore he's going to see it through like he's so invested in like taking care of the people and keeping them together and Feanor is like I'm gonna take these ships I'm gonna go with my people and I'm not coming back like Feanor just immediately repays Fingolfin's like oath to the oath to follow him as his older brother and like commitment 
to his family by leaving him on the shores when it's too late for him to turn around. Right? Like, F like Fingolfin's like, no, I'm committed. I'm committed to this quest. And Feanor's immediately like, I'm leaving. I'm ditching goodbye. That's an adorable cat. Eloise, why? <laughs> All right. But like, and now Fingolfin's Why? Like, because oh, I'm like trying to convince people to adopt one of them. <laughs> but there's no one here that's a good, like, audience for that because we already have cats. Yeah, but that makes the audience around you of those who don't have cats becomes uh, audience and be like, you have I to see. spare me from my suffering of like weekly kitten time. Uh, get one of those kittens because otherwise it's going to keep popping up on the chat. Makes sense. Makes sense. Anyhow, there's like an inherent tragedy there in like Fingolfin's just like desire to do good things for his family even when it means doing really bad things and giving everything up and Feanor's like utter disrespect and like lack of care for him and his family and his people. That was what I was um, gonna say. On the other hand you have like Finarfin who's like quietly disagreeing with Feanor and then he's like but I guess Fingolfin has a point of about the unity thing. And as soon as like uh, they massacre his brothers-in-law people, he's like, you know what? Healthy boundaries. I've learned that by myself because Manway doesn't know what it is. Eluvata El El doesn't know what it is. No one knows what fucking healthy boundaries are, but I'm putting a stop here. Healthy boundaries is a new thing, a new concept. Brand new from Finarfin, I'm leaving. You're like crazy. That is not okay. You don't massacre a whole people just because they disagree with you. And for Fernos, like, yeah, coward. Yeah, witch. I'll massacre you when I'm done with everyone else. And it's like, like I'm pretty sure that's what Ferno had in plan. It's like, on the list of people to massacre, like at the bottom is like Finarfin's people who didn't follow me when uh, I made my little his fit. I love healthy boundaries, new concept from Finarfin. Yes. Important. The problem is that he stayed in Valinor, so the healthy boundary thing did not follow up into Valerian, and I'm pretty sure it's gonna like come back in their face. Okay. Speaking of things coming back and exploding in people's faces, so based on the doom of Mandos, what are we expecting to see in the rest of this book? Sad things. Yes, would you like to be more specific? <laughs> uh, no, because I don't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, but basically, when people try to do stuff, it's not going to turn out in their best interest. Yeah, like the Doom mentions like a lot of things, tears, blood, treason, evil, uh, dying for real, like Muriel, uh, Muriel started this trend, so now everyone's going to follow it, enjoy, uh, brought to you by Mendoza. Um, maybe you'll become ghost because we won't give you a body back if you don't come to Mendos. 
enjoy that too. Um, and oh, if you don't die, you'll wish you'd be dead because you're going to be so tired of that shit. And so basically that's, that's it. That's tear blood. It's basically like a parallel of like Churchill, um, this speech at the beginning of what to tear blood, pain, tiredness, sleepless nights. Enjoy. We in guys. Yep. Um, what else? Is in here. Um, I mean, treason. A lot of treason. Uh, cycles of violence with treason and fear of treason. It's like, wow. Well, you started something, so uh, it's gonna come back to haunt you for you know the rest of your days. And also the. Um... Yeah, you wanted to go to Middle Earth. Um, you're gonna regret that and want to come back to Valinor. Like it's like it's a lot of uh, short-term foreseeing. It's like, oh, some treason and blood gonna be spilled, and uh, very long things. Like, yeah. You're not gonna last in Middle Earth forever. Yes. Anything else? Did uh, did we mention the bit about elves getting tired? Yes. Weary of the world. Yes, Eloise mentioned that. That is all right. That's almost all of the answers. There's a lot of things. Um, the two others that I don't think were quite mentioned were. Um, the oath will snatch away the treasures that, or like will cause the treasures that you're pursuing to be snatched from you. So you aren't even going to be able to get the treasures. Um, and uh, not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. So all of this shitty stuff is going to happen to you and you're dead to us. We won't even hear about it. I mean, it just follows up with Zevala doesn't don't care about what's happening outside of Valinor anyway. The Valar asterisk except Ulmo. And I will forever argue also Manuel. And I don't care what anybody says. I stand up for my boy Manuel. For evidence, I got some looks. Um, all the stuff that happens in the Third Age, where there's some sort of intervention by wind, I think is pretty big evidence that Monway is like he can making sure things go go the right way. It's Manway learning. I guess well, he does do like one thing. He listens to like at least one prayer in the Silmarillion. But we'll get there. Okay. Um, so in and what a choice it is, right? Like he chooses one thing to listen to of every prayer and every concern in the entire film, really. And he's like, I have one commitment. It's because Manwe ships it. Okay. Anyway, we'll get there. Um, 
All right, so in past years, we've had a discussion or a debate or a confused conversation um, at this point about whether the Doom of Mandos is creating fate or just expressing it. And also whether or not it's fate at all or just like a interpretation of cause and effect, I suppose, like a yeah, like a bit of wisdom. That makes sense too, yeah. Does anyone have a spicy take on that? I kind of follow Rob's spicy take on that. Um, it's not as much fate as Um, how to say that? Like it's saying, you have spilled the blood of your kindred and righteously and have stained the land of Ammon for blood, you shall render blood. And it's also when he mentions like the treason things like uh, by treason of kin unto kin and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. And it's like, it's not like everyone was chilling, nothing happened, and then Mandos is like, that's gonna happen now. Treason and blood, enjoy, and it happens. It's Mandos saying, A, you, you started something, something that's very, 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 very bad. And one, it's not sustainable because it's actually evil and evil is not sustainable and actually self-destructive. But like Mendes does not go into this philosophical concern of evil. Uh, <laughs> but he does say evil cause evil in a way. Like you started a chain, a chain of reaction that will lead to more bad things. You betrayed you you were afraid of being betrayed by the Teleri, so you betrayed them and you killed them and stole their ship, which, wow, ouch. Uh, particularly when they, as mentioned earlier, offered to talk about it. Yeah, no, just saying. The Teleri have it too hard, it's unfair. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's not as much like Forcing fate, or like maybe there's a bit of that because there's foresight in in not thing, but like it's not as much setting fate or foreseeing fate as saying like you started something that has consequences that you don't even understand. You don't have any idea of all the ramification of what you're doing, and that is your last stance to stop and to get those ramifications at the root before you get a tree of ramification that's going to fuck everyone up. And Fiano is like, the only ramification I see is that I just said, fuck you all, and I don't care. I'm going to keep doing that. And it's like, why did you give why did you let Trump into power again, Fingolfin? We don't need tiny Hitler with pointy ears here, but too late, we have him. Um, yeah, it's like, 
I don't think there's like fate in that. It's just, well, maybe a tiny bit with a regret and you won't last in middle earth part. But like saying the Valar won't listen to you, it's maybe just a decision they just made. Saying um, like you expect to get the Silmaril back, but that's not how you're going to get them back. It's maybe just logically like a bit of, I, it's not 90% foresight and logic. It's, I would say it's 90% logic and a bit of foresight who helps a lot, that helps the logic. But I think a lot of it is, yeah, not that much fate as much as it's consequences. Um, I've got the most lukewarm take that it's a little bit of, of everything. Um, because there's the fact that they uh, spoke an oath, and that oath is binding. So I think that is an element. There's an element of fate there that's being explained to them, the consequences of that oath. There is a little bit of just um, like some wisdom in uh, like what you've done will cause other bad things to happen. Um, but then there's also like a proclamation about the fate of their souls, which is purely in the Valar's control. Um, where is it? So when they die, uh, their, uh, your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies and find little pity though all whom ye have slain should treat for you. So even if everybody you've done wrong forgives you, I, Mandos, won't forgive you and you're gonna be stuck here for a while. You're not gonna get any pity from me. And that's completely in his control. So. I do think it's a little more complex than saying it's like one type of um, doom. I would also add that it seems to reek a little bit of Greek prophecy insofar as, hey, you found out something about your future. You know what I bet you're going to do? You're going to take action to like change that. And boy, howdy, is that going to feed into the inevitable result? Fano's like, treason of kin to kin, you say. I'd better leave those kin that I don't trust behind. And, well, you know, that's just great for his interpersonal relationships. And, <clears throat> son. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Okay. Um, so for our last 10 minutes in a token effort to pretend that, you know, we talked about two chapters this week, I would like to open the floor to any and all comments about Of the Sindar. <laughs> like, there's just a lot in Of the Flight of the Noldor. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, mean, I didn't actually get that far in the reading, so I've got nothing. As I said earlier, Of the Sindar, and even though, like, it's, like, peppered with, like, you know, like, you don't have a lot of tales about quiet times because they're quiet. Um, so it's like preparing the floor for like, they're gonna hit, gonna get hit by a boulder running uh, at all speed. Um, the start of all the cinder, of the cinder, like, just after like, all the freaking drama of this previous chapter is like, Oh yeah, we just saw an entire like burn, like 
and uh, fires are destroyed so much. Like we, we just saw like a forest fire. And now look at this beautiful, quiet little forest. Isn't it a neat, quiet little forest? And it's like, you see the fire just like literally on the other page. And you're like, this little forest is not gonna stay a little forest quiet and beautiful for a long time. And it's like, yeah, maybe it's a bit of sparks here and there, but we managed to, we managed them. They're not here anymore. Like this one was a bit bigger than the other and one king died and it's sad, but we have millions. She protects the forest. It's fine. It's like, yeah, there's still a forest fire coming, you know that? Uh, and it's like a, a very interesting contrast in the like construction of the book. Like I, I understand why he put it there because that's when like Middle Earth and Valinor is coming into contact is when the Noldor are finally being like, oh, we should go to Val to to Middle Earth. But it really has like a starking contrast, like finishing the flight of the Noldor and starting of the Sindar with like, everything is fine. When you can still hear the forest fire at the back. Yeah, I do think that one of the strengths of this chapter is how it shows the reflection of what happened in the previous one on the people who are still in Beleriand. Like, they've been sitting here mostly minding their own business, trying to deal with Morgoth, but you, you see the blowback of everything that's been happening. And one of the coolest parts of that is when Melian single-handedly stops the rampage of Ungoliant. I think of the Sindar has so many cool things. If there's one thing that I wish was expanded um, a hundredfold, it would be this single tiny chapter. Uh, I don't know, fan or whatever, who cares? Some whiny melodramatic dude whining about his jewels. I don't, I don't really care. But like just the idea of these elves that are living alone in darkness and making it work and they have this like one being who could help them make it work and how they're doing things and forming factions and then getting pushed back by dark things in the darkness and getting like pushed into their little circle. I don't know. There's just so many, there's so many interesting things you could, you could write about in that, in that long time, time span. Yeah, I was also really digging that this is a period where elves and dwarves are getting along and are mm -hmm. making beautiful things together. I was like really into that, even though there's like some narrative perspectives on the dwarves that I find highly questionable. Like, okay, there's that part where it's like, like dwarves at that time were warlike people and they would fight with orcs and with beasts and sometimes with each other. And I don't know, it just felt very like moralistic to me in like a super hypocritical way, given that this is coming from the elves. Like you're saying that as though you don't also do that, guys. But in terms of the actual events depicted, they work together to build Menegroth, which is really cool. I also like 
I don't like when jewels are mentioned in the Silmarillion because it's like, oh yes, they paint them back with pearls. I'm like, this is going to come back so hard. I don't know who is going to come back in their face, but it's going to come back in their face and it's going to blow up bad. I, I don't know her, but I can say it. I guess like Jewel and the Precious and one of them has a name. Something oh, is going to happen. Oh, you know what's fun? Like it totally does blow up and like there is a whole mess with that. But that named Pearl, never relevant, doesn't matter, did not need a name. Yeah, but the, like, you know, like, I think the name just, it's not necessarily that this Pearl will cause track. <laughs> the fact that one of those Pearls have been named means that those Pearls are important enough to have at least one of them get a name. Meaning the whole group of pearl is affected by this importance of the one named pearl, meaning it's gonna blow up around. It it has to. As fair soon enough. as you name a devil, fair enough, it blows up. People want it. And then strife happens. But yeah. Like a thing that like kind of nicked me with like the like elven perspective on the wolf is that yeah so they have those names and we know the names of like their place in their language but how you you know how we're gonna call them like we want to call them and i'm like yes it's an act it's a translation and like it works and stuff but like we don't need the translation like we don't like it's not like they're gonna start calling it like um Mickelberg of or Hollowbolt just to understand what the fuck the city means. No, no, they just don't want to use a dwarf name. And I'm like, literally, at this point, it's not about the meaning of the world, it's like what they represent. And the dwarven world represents as much as the elvish world, and it's actually more respectful to the dwarf to use um, Tumindaha or Gabil Gathol, and yes, you have to pronounce two more syllables every time. Terrible. This is all so hard. You whining little elves. I understand why it's a statue. You write stuff and you don't even respect what they, like they say. Yeah, that, uh, that bit about the elves just not bothering to learn um, the language of the dwarves, and the dwarves are like, eh, it's fine, we can learn another language, we're, we're, we're good with that. Just feels so ironic to me that the elves present themselves as these gifted um, artisans of language and poetry, but you can't, you can't learn dwarvish? Come on. I had a similar thought, too, where the elves are very, like, we are language lovers because our language is so beautiful. The dwarf language is really ugly. And then meanwhile, you have the dwarves who are like very skilled linguists to the point that they learn everyone else's language. And like, that's theoretically something that the elves respect. But instead of being like, oh, the dwarves are great linguists, we get along with them. They're like, they can't be that good linguists. Their language is ugly. Okay. In the defense of the elf, the line about learning the language is the dwarves were swift to learn and indeed were more willing to learn the elven tongue than to teach their own. So it's not only the elf being like, 
oh, I don't touch that with a 10,000 foot, like, foot pole. It's the dwarf being like, I don't want you anywhere near my language. You love languages? Bullshit. You don't deserve my language. Fuck off. So like, there's a bit of that too. But like, that doesn't mean it's not possible because some elves do learn the dwarf language. Some elves do go to their cities. Some elves do put in the efforts to be, de to be deserving of those teaching and this, those invitations. Most elves are like, me, I don't care. You're small and hairy. What can you teach me? And it's even more hilarious, like this underlying attitude of like, what can you teach me when there is so many lines here that are like, yes, like the elf did great thing, but on those things, they could not even like get near how, of how good the dwarves were. And it's particularly like delightful when like it's about an order because like it's uh, about like when they're making the weapons and stuff, it's like, oh yeah. Like, I'm not saying the Noldor were bad at making weapons. I'm just saying that no matter how much effort they put in, that was way better. And that's the end of it. And I'm like, see, see, buy that, friends of Auli. Those are the creatures of Auli, and they're so cool. And yes, they're small and hairy, but they're so cool. And I don't actually think, like, I think the line where they're like, mention fighting with the orcs and stuff and they actually say the dwarves don't fight within themselves that much they fight others that are not dwarves i have to find it back um it's too bad that we need to wait um like two more ages for an elf who is friends with dwarves and also isn't a horrible person Just a question. Do we hear of um, Eol and Meglin after the mention that they are friends with the dwarves and the only one that get there to the city? Or we don't? Oh, yeah. We... Oh, yeah, you do. They're both villains. Okay, cool. They're both That's why awful you have to wait people. for two ages. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, you were right. They fight fiercely against whom whomsoever agreed them, Sevens of Melkor, or Eldar, or Avari, or Wild Beast, or not seldom their own kin. I, I missed the not in yeah. that. It's so judgmental in a way that just gets me. It's like, not seldom their own kin. I, oh, you wouldn't do that, would you? Would you? <laughs> Right? Yeah, things things the elves say right directly after committing their own kin slayings. Man, other people kill their families? How could you I, I do wonder, that? I wonder how much that has to do with, like, the lack of a sense of time and lifespan between the elves and the dwarves. Like, I wonder from a, the perspective of an elf, you're like, man, these people are fighting all the time. But they're also having babies all the time. And you live forever, you know. It's a, it's like just a completely wild perspective. Um, yeah, like an elf has like 
honestly, an elf probably, an, an average Silmarillion elf, like a Noldor probably does more kinslayings in their lifetime than a dwarf does in their lifetime. It's just the dwarf's lifetime is shorter. Right? Mithros commits three kinslayings over the course of his life, as well as, like, you know, other things. That's a lot of kinslayings for one person. But, like, dwarves have, like, one fight, you know, and everyone's like, wow, oh, you fight all the time. We don't actually know how many fights dwarves have. Probably because they were actually in the scale of things not fighting as much. That's the other thing I want to know about, too, is, is the... Sund you could call it the sundering of the dwarves, I guess. Like, why are they so split up into these extreme faction, these these extreme camps? Um, why? Where did the unity go? You know, like what? What happened? Want to know more? I just assume they all woke up in different places and therefore like established slightly different cultures. Right? Like, one of the things is that when the dwarves wake up, they're all already in different places. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. That's not enough for me. I want to know more about it. Like, you're living in darkness with this existential threat, and you're not getting along. I guess it's not that much different than, than humans in real life, but, you know, still. I know more about human history than I know about dwarf history, so I'm not as curious. I mean, I I feel that, again, like it might be also like just the elves being like, oh, they fight all the time because they think that they, that's how they see it, but it could also be like, maybe they just don't fight to death. All the, like they, maybe they do kill the orcs and stuff and stuff, but like maybe when they're fighting between dwarves, it's just that's just how they resolve conflict. Like you see who hits the hardest, and then and then like you're happy with that and you uh, you accept that as a truth. Uh, <laughs> but no one dies in the process. It's just how you solve conflicts, and that's maybe just like cultural differences that the elves really don't understand something. Does anyone else have uh, have thoughts? My thought is that we should talk more about the dwarves next week, <laughs> even though we officially should have talked about it this week. Yeah, it's it's hard to talk about the dwarves um, in the Silmarillion because the Elvish perspective is really strong, um, and they're ignorant of a lot. You have to bring in a lot of um, like extra material from the history of Middle Earth to fill in the gaps, I think. Yeah, I think like, okay, I'm just going to say that this chapter of the Cinder introduces a lot, like not introduces, but like reminds us of small groups or small pockets of we don't actually know much about. And because I have a very strong interest, as soon as I like don't know much about something, I'm like, I want to know more about this thing. Like you have the dwarves, you have the people of Denethor, you have the Avari, are they all becoming orcs? Or are they like what else who are trying to survive in the middle of orcs? You don't know, you don't know, I want to know. There's so much I don't, I want to know and I don't know because the Noldor didn't care enough. Or like the people who wrote the Silmarillion didn't care enough. Silmarillion, sorry, didn't care enough. And it's like, 
I want to be teleported in Middle Earth and do research. So much research. <laughs> I need to know. I need the knowing. So yeah, this this chapter is like also very not placed very well if you want to discuss it in the pair in pair with Flight of the Nordor because there's a lot to talk about Flight of the Nordor. But like there's a lot of puppets of like beautiful thing to talk about in of the Sindar too. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate that it isn't. There there are bits that are relevant to the overall narrative, but. There's a lot that's just, you know, explains a couple yeah. of things that you don't need to remember. But do you, don't you, a little bit? Like, like I said, I would be happy out of everything in the Silmarillion. I think this particular chapter is the one I'd want to expand on and know more about. Yeah, just... like Lucien is casually born at the beginning of the chapter too. It's like, oh yeah, they had a kid. It's cool. She was pretty. Yeah. Never gonna come in. Like, there's so much that, like, it's like seeds of something that's gonna develop either in the Silmarillion or somewhere else. And some of those somewhere else did not appear, they did not came to be because Tolkien died before writing his whole trilogy about the dwarves and his whole explanation of what happened to the Havari. And I'm like, this is sad. <laughs> listen. <laughs> listen. I know he would get, go against, he would be against Ouija board, but Halloween's coming up. I think we should ask. I think we should spend the whole Halloween day asking Tolkien to write the next chapter about the dwarf. That's what I think. <laughs> All right, let's get the Ouija board ready. You know what? You know what's funny? Marilyn has a spirit board, so it's oh. fine. She can do it. I trust her to do it properly. We lost it's Tristan. Like, we mentioned the Ouija board now. Now he's out. 